This is a Federal News Network podcast. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, together with the Census Bureau, recently launched a challenge. They're looking for developers to find creative ways to use NOAA's data. And the goal is to create applications state and local governments can use to make better decisions about climate change. Here with the details, the chief of NOAA's Communication, Education and Engagement Division, David Herring. Mr. Herring, good to have you on. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Now, tell us what Census brings to this, what NOAA brings to this, and basically what it is that's going on here, and what's the status of the program right now? Yes, thank you. This is part of the Opportunity Project, which is an annual developmental sprint hosted by the Census Bureau, aimed at making available federal agencies' data for use by commercial companies in their own applications. So the idea is to help people get and use federal agencies' data in a wide range of applications. And NOAA probably has the most data on climate and atmosphere and so on of anyone, but is it strictly NOAA's data that is available to challenge takers, or do you bring in, I don't know, Agriculture Department and NASA? So many agencies have allied data here. So it's true that NOAA does serve as the nation's archivist and steward of weather and climate data, not just from all across the nation, but from around the world. However, the Opportunity Project is inclusive of agencies from all across the federal family. So in this particular sprint, we are including data from the U.S. Geological Survey, from NASA, from EPA, from FEMA, and other agencies. Oh, yeah, EPA, too. Forgot about them for a minute. And how does this work? Can anyone join the challenge and download data sets, or do you pick and choose from among proposals to let people go to the next phase and actually start coding things? So there are actually two initiatives as a part of the Opportunity Project underway. In the first one, there was a recruitment process whereby different companies, technical teams could offer to lead teams. So we have in our sprint, we have six concurrent technical teams that are working on their own solutions. And of course, they will retain the intellectual property rights and they'll be able to take their own products back and find pathways to taking them to market for themselves. Then there's also an open data for good challenge that anyone anywhere in the world that follows that same process that the Census Bureau hosts can jump in and participate in. And there are cash prizes awarded for the winners of those competitions. And give us an example of the types of teams or the types of organizations that are fielding teams in this. Are they coming from ExxonMobil or are they coming from Greenpeace or the range of people that have something to say that impinges on climate? There are both large and small companies that are participating and that have teams. So, for example, Esri, the very well-known mapping technology company based in California. There's also Deloitte that's also very well-known. But then smaller, perhaps less well-known companies such as Mapbox, City Ventures, My Sidewalk. There are a number of uh, smaller mapping companies and application development companies that are participating. So it's really open to all. We're speaking to David Herring. He's the chief of the Communication, Education, and Engagement Division at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And what's your conception of what types of applications might come out of this? Say there's a town manager or a city council or a governor's council on climate. I mean, these kinds of initiatives are happening almost everywhere you look now. But what do you envision could be a typical type of outcome that would be useful to a non-federal governmental entity? We're seeking the development of new computer technologies that are going to make it quicker and easier for local communities 
to find and use federal agencies' data and to integrate these data together with their own local data and information to help them build their knowledge together and ultimately to help guide and form their local resilience planning. Some feedback that we've received over the years tells us that often these local community leaders or the consultants they hire sometimes are challenged in finding what's available to them or perhaps they're challenged in understanding what the data mean or the formatting may be challenging for them. So there are issues that they've been struggling with. So the idea here is to build what I like to call as the technological bridges as well as the cognitive bridges that are needed to enable these local community leaders to find our data and integrate them seamlessly together with their own local data to better inform their planning process. And what about the big civil engineering firms? Often they act as consultancies to non-federal government in planning roads and in planning dams and in planning all sorts of infrastructure. And so resilience clearly, as we've seen in recent weeks, has to be part of that whole development. Do you find those companies also interested in this challenge? Yes. Often when there's the planning process that's happening in a location, there are actually multiple entities together in the room sitting around the table participating in what I like to call a co-production of knowledge process. And each is bringing their special expertise to the table. And it's a multifaceted deliberation. But often these architecture and engineering companies, they're bringing their own expertise. They have their own data. But they are also seeking information from both the federal family in terms of climatic changes, as well as environmental circumstances and changes that are ongoing. But they're also seeking local communities, socioeconomic data and information as well. So it's a bit of a mashup of data and information and expertise from multiple sources in a deliberative dialogue. So therefore, Census, which is the enabler, is the almost the program manager of the challenge, could also have a lot of the data that would be needed to complete some of this work because where water might be or fire might be, they would know, Census would know where people might be to overlay on that other information. That's right. So what populations are living and working in what locations? And also, what about our built environments, our infrastructure and our valuable natural resources. So that information is also coming from other agencies. So it's really one of those, not only whole of government initiatives, but it's a whole of society initiative because none of us knows as much as all of us. And it really is an exercise in knowledge sharing, gathering and integrating information and in a sort of a facilitated dialogue process, putting all the pieces together to help us understand our risk and to help us determine together what to do about it. Now, with respect to the federal data itself, you mentioned five or six big agencies that are involved here, and there's probably more. And frankly, hunting for data sets that are relevant among federal agencies, that's a full-time job for, it's like spelunking almost, to be able to find it. And then Lord knows what format it will be when you finally do find it. So is there anything going on in the back end to try to stage and organize and apply metadata and so forth so that the researchers spend their time thinking about the application? and not hunting for the federal data that might be relevant. Well, yes, Tom, that's exactly right. There's a lot of elbow grease now going into making improvements in the descriptive information, the, the word metadata, which is data about data. So in short, you know, what does this data mean? How can we convey that in plain English, recognizing that the user communities out there that also want to get and use these data may not be experts. They may not be researchers or earth scientists, but rather 
They may be responsible for infrastructure or land zoning or community health and so forth. And so, again, that's why I use that word bridge building. It's both the cognitive bridges as well as the technological bridges. They may also not be data experts. They may not know uh, how to format or how to analyze and process data. And so doing a lot of the pre-processing or applying different services that make it really easy to grab and integrate our data together with their own so that they can begin to get right into the deliberation. So it's just making the whole thing a lot faster, more efficient, uh, lower cost. Because to use the data for an application doesn't mean you necessarily have to download it. And once you have a runtime application running, it would have to be able to access the data, but again, not own that whole or take in that whole data set. So who's responsible for the APIs here? Does NOAA, for example, have a library of APIs to the data sets, or do the developers have to develop those themselves also? Well, that's a great question. And again, that's one of the situations where I like to say it's an all of government, all of society approach. So certainly through the Federal Geographic Data Committee or the FGDC, many of the agencies and the federal family have been developing and sharing these APIs that allow people to sort of develop their own customized tools for integration of maps and data from across the federal government. But a lot of the consultants and or these A&E firms will develop some of their own APIs as well. So it's a situation where sort of both parties are reaching across the divide and coming together to increasingly make this more seamless. And what are some of the deadlines and uh, milestones at this point? Some of the deadlines, uh, we kicked off the sprint on August 5th, and it's a 12-week developmental sprint. And so in the first couple of phases, we have been bringing together the developers with the target user communities and facilitating an interview process where they come to understand them better and their workflows. We've introduced them to a listing of data sets that we think are relevant for local resilience planning to help socialize the data and help them understand. And so our next milestone that's upcoming is really their concept pitch. So how are they going to put all these puzzle pieces together into some new technology, some new API, or some new application that's going to support these local community planners and their consultants. And then beyond that, we'll start to have discussions about, okay, what would be pathways for taking these products to market? And one of the premises behind the challenge is the development of equitable resilience building. And what exactly does that mean? Good question. Equitable resilience building ensures that disadvantaged underserved, elderly, and communities of color, really those who are hit first and worst by the impacts of climate change are not omitted from the resilience building process. There's a saying that I like uh, that goes, nothing about me without me. And so the point is we cannot achieve climate resilience unless we center diversity, equity, and inclusion really throughout the resilience planning and building process. And because every local community situation is unique, both in terms of their values and in terms of their exposure to climate-related hazards, every segment of the community must have a seat at the table in deciding what actions to take to promote the health and vitality of their whole community while reducing their risks. All right, sounds exciting. David Herring is the Chief of the Communication, Education, and Engagement Division at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Thanks so much for joining me. Tom, thank you. It's been a pleasure. 
We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life and um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style and how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day and I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, 
throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell C-stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is 
is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.